In this weekend edition, three segments from this week's C-SPAN's Washington Journal program. First, Dr. Amish Adalja, a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. He discusses the Biden administration's plan to end the COVID-19 public health emergency. Then, former Democratic Congresswoman and former Orlando Police Chief Fal Demings. She discusses her new role as co-chair of the Council on Policing Reforms and Race. She'll talk about the council's new recommendations for police reform. Plus, Indy Dutta Gupta of the Center for Law and Social Policy and Rachel Gresler of the Heritage Foundation discuss the 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. First, the Biden administration announced plans this week to end the COVID-19 public health emergency on May 11th. Dr. Amish Adalja from the Bloomberg School of Public Health explains what that means. What that means is that the current status that we have, where the federal government has a major role in dealing with COVID-19 at the hospital level, at the pharmaceutical level, at the vaccine level, will start to wind down. And that COVID-19 will be handled much like other respiratory viruses are handled in our current healthcare system, meaning the commercial market, the regular formats that people use with insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, all of that will be what will what will happen with COVID-19 going forward. As far as the date itself, what is specific about May 11th? What makes it special? There's nothing that really makes it special other than that there was going to be some notice that was uh, going to have to occur before the emergencies ended, because many of these programs that have been put in place during the pandemic need to wind down. They need to transition. They need to hand off to the commercial market or to the regular healthcare apparatus. And that takes some time and they want to anticipate hiccups. And I think that's why that date is May 11th. But it was always said that when this emergency ended, there would be plenty of notice. What did you think about the decision itself to end it? I agreed with it. I think when you look at what triggered those decisions in the beginning, the in, the inv- invocation of a public health emergency, it was at a time when we were really worried about our hospital's ability to care for patients, when we worried about the, the numbers of ventilators we had or ICU beds or personal protective equipment, when we had no vaccines, no boosters, no antivirals, no testing, no home testing. Home testing was not anything we even thought about at that point. And if you think about how far we've come, COVID-19 is a much more manageable infection. It's not something that inundates hospitals anymore. We don't worry about hospital capacity uh, the way we once did. Uh, I'll be working in the the hospital tomorrow, and it's unlikely that I see very many COVID patients, if any. Uh, Just to clarify, then, if this decision specifically looks at the public health emergency, what's the difference between that and the national emergency that was declared? Well, the national emergency is more broader in scope, and I think it gives the federal government more powers. So both of these are going to be ended. Uh, Sometimes you may have public health emergencies without a national emergency and vice versa. It was just that COVID-19 was such a disruptive force on the government and the the population as a whole that both of these emergencies were invoked. So this will really just kind of get things back to the norm um, after May 11th with this transition period to make sure that things don't fall through the cracks. Doctor, at the same time that the president made his decision, we saw in Congress an effort to end these uh, emergency provisions immediately. You talked about that transition time, the possible hiccups. What do you think about the two approaches about ending it within, with a few months of transition versus what the Republicans wanted in the House? 
I think you do need to have transitions because this is going to be a, a lot of things that have to happen fairly quickly to make sure that we don't have any disruption in the care that people get and the access to certain medical countermeasures like vaccines, boosters, antivirals, home tests. There needs to be some period of time. So I don't think that the approach of ending it immediately without time for the private sector to be able to absorb all of these these tasks makes sense. I think you want to do it in a responsible way so that you don't create more havoc. And I think that at least you need to have this notice. It, it, the, the, the public health emergency could have ended you know, now, but I think we would want to have had, had noticed several months ago that that was going to happen so that you can prepare that process. That process has been ongoing, but I think now it's really going to begin in earnest. So it's not so much about the date. It's making sure that people have noticed that it's going to occur so that they can actually start to transition these important tasks. Uh, you talked about then those potential hiccups. What are the scenarios that possibly could happen in this time of transition? Well, well, we know that, for example, hospitals get extra payments for uh, for COVID-19 patients. That's going to go away. So you want to make sure that hospitals understand the financial implications and a plan for that. Uh, we know that people are getting vaccines, boosters, antivirals out of, with zero out-of-pocket costs. There needs to be a discussion with insurers and third-party payers and Medicare and Medicaid about how that's going to happen, how much out-of-pocket costs there's going to be for various plans. The same goes for home testing. Uh, all of those types of things need to be worked out so that people are not in, left kind of in limbo or in, in a state of uncertainty when the public health emergency ends. And these things are not exclusively funded with taxpayer funds. So if someone say we're getting free testing or free you know, medications in order to counter, potentially that could stop within this time period. Yes, and eventually it will stop, and, and this will be something that people will get through their insurer or they'll pay out of pocket for. But that's that's what will happen. That's what happens with every other respiratory infectious disease we have, that they're handled by the ordinary healthcare apparatus that we have. But because people have become so accustomed to it being zero out of pocket costs, and insurance insurers haven't been dealing with the reimbursement and the payment, this is something that needs to be worked out. How much they're going to pay, how much they're going to reimburse, how that's all going to work, and it that sometimes takes time, unfortunately, because it is a bureaucratic process. Uh, before we uh, take you to calls, then what's your what you're thinking as far as the current state of COVID-19 in the United States? Well, I think we're in a, a fairly decent place. You have to remember that this is a virus that cannot be eradicated, that cannot be eliminated. We will always have COVID-19 uh, in this country. The key thing was to make it more manageable, to decouple or to delink cases from hospitals in crisis. And I think we're there. If you think about vaccines, boosters, antivirals, home tests, uh, immune modulating drugs for people in the hospital. I, I think we're in a place that we are with no other respiratory virus. I wish sometimes that we had tools for other respiratory viruses similar to the ones we have for COVID-19. So I, I don't think it has the disruptive effect that it once had. And I don't think it requires I don't think it requires the public health emergency to be in place. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be cases, hospitalizations and deaths. It doesn't mean that there's still not work to do to get more people vaccinated, get more high risk people boosted and certainly to get more high risk people prescribed Paxlovid. There's still work to be done to make COVID even more manageable. But I think it's kind of moved or transitioned from that public health emergency because of the tools that science and medicine have given us. That was Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Next, a discussion about police reform in the wake of the Tyree Nichols beating death in Memphis. Former Florida Congresswoman Val Demings joins us now for a discussion on policing and race. After leaving Congress, she joined the National Policing Institute's new initiative on police reform. Congresswoman, explain the mission of this project that you're working on now uh, and, uh, and how you got involved in it. 
Well, good morning, John, and good morning to your listeners. It's good to be, or your viewers, it's good to be back uh, with you. Uh, this is work uh, through the National Policing Institute that has gone on for two years. Uh, we initially thought maybe it would be about three months, but we realized that there was so much that we needed to look at. It was research-based, which is a good thing. It involved not only law enforcement, but the faith community, um, other communities, social service representatives. And I believe we were able over the last two years to do some good work. Uh, we know that uh, we have some problems. You know, I spent 27 years in law enforcement. It's a profession that I love. I've worked with some of the bravest, most courageous, most compassionate uh, men and women, but we've had some problems. And as you know, over the last two years, almost three now, since the death of George Floyd, the focus has been on police reform. So the National Police Institute, who has been around for about 50 years, mission has always been to look at policing and race. And so the uh, group came together, the council came together. We looked at everything from policies and procedures, hiring standards, uh, specialized units. We looked at um, community-based uh, uh, programs that could certainly help reduce crime. And the overall mission was to just look at public safety in a more holistic way. That public safety is not just a responsibility of the police, but it takes a community to be involved, to keep us all safe and to build stronger communities. I know that's what we all want. Congresswoman, at this point, we've all seen the, the Tyree Nichols videos, uh, the edited several different videos, the what's been released so far. What stands out to you? What's your reaction to those videos? Well, as a 27-year law enforcement officer, a chief of police, um, someone who worked as a social worker before becoming a police officer, um, I saw the video and it was shocking and appalling. And I think that every good person, every decent person, every good and decent police officer and police executive uh, should see the video as shocking uh, and appalling. And so, you know, and, and what I've looked as a police ex executive, I've certainly had an opportunity to review footage and go back and look at what happened, what was the purpose for the stop and and what occurred, what did the person who was stopped do to dictate the actions of the police. That's what we always said, that the subject's actions dictate the response of the police. Well, I have looked, John, and and I know the investigation is ongoing, but the video is pretty clear. And we should not ask anyone to not believe their lying eyes or ears. The video is pretty clear that this was a night that went off uh, the rails. And I have not been able, I know the police chief, Chief Davis is still looking, still reviewing, still trying to find the justification for the stop in the first place. I have not been able to see any justification uh, for the stop. And, and let me just say this, this is a tough subject, but we got to get at this right. What happened to Tyree Nichols, what his family, his community, his friends, every decent person is going through. We have got to come together and put processes and programs in place and legislation that can prevent things like this from happening again. 
The headline uh, that we're seeing today, a seventh officer linked to Tyree Nichols' death investigation has been relieved of duty. Uh, and of course, as you talked about already, the, the specialized unit there receiving so much scrutiny in, in the wake of uh, these videos being released. Why do we have these specialized policing units? What's their purpose? Should departments have these kinds of units? You know, John, I had, of course, had specialized units uh, at the Orlando Police Department. When I was appointed chief, a crime at an all-time high in Orlando, or a murder rate, other violent crime, and the citizens of Orlando wanted the police to do something about it. And so we had specialized units as well. Their purpose, as I said in Orlando, was to target uh, the worst of the worst, the gang members, the drug dealers, those who were committing gun violence, the worst of the worst. And we had a list and we knew who uh, they were. And so specialized units that target the worst of the worst behavior is something that citizens appreciated because they wanted crime reduced, especially violent crimes reduced in their communities. I can remember getting calls from some of our seniors and retirees who lived in certain neighborhoods and said, look, They were tired of trying to go to church and having to wade through the drug dealers uh, to get to church. They were tired of seeing their grandchildren walk to the bus stop and being accosted by drug dealers. So everyone, regardless of who they are, or gang members, everyone, regardless of who they are, deserves to live in safe and secure uh, communities. But look, I had a specialized unit that I had to disband because the department has a certain mission It certainly has certain policies and procedures, but also what we've seen is that within some specialized units, while the department's culture is one of uh, safety and service, some specialized units can develop their own toxic culture. And I certainly had to disband uh, one of our units. So look, specialized units serve a good purpose. They're created for the right reasons, but you have to have the most highly trained, highly seasoned officers within those units, you have to be sure that you're giving proper supervision. And one thing that is really important is to not leave these officers there. It's high risk, it's high stress. Uh, You have to rotate the men and women within those specialized units on a regular basis. And this unit in Memphis, the so-called Scorpion Unit, Street Crimes Operation to Restore Peace in our neighborhoods created in late 2021, shut down on Saturday, a a day after uh, the police chief there had defended it. Uh, On uh, calls for reform, uh, a lot of focus on the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, uh, passed the House last Congress, uh, did not pass the Senate last Congress. What does that do? And if that had been passed, is there anything in that that you think would have prevented what happened here? You know, John, I I was disappointed um, that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act stalled uh, in the U.S. Senate. Look, it's not perfect legislation. We all know that, right? I certainly didn't think it was perfect. There were some areas that I didn't necessarily agree with. But we needed to do something. Inaction seldom protects anyone. And I think with developing national standards, 
that will help give police departments the tools that they need. Remember, we have over 18,000 law enforcement agencies in our country. God bless the men and women who do the job right every day. It is a tough job. We have police departments that are 36,000. We have police departments that are as few as 10 or even less than that. So I believe developing some national standards in terms of hiring, in terms of training, in terms of the proper use of equipment, especially that that is coming from the federal government, certainly were good things. Modifying policies, like and remember, let me go back to hiring, hiring the brightest and the best. We know that we have to hire men and women who have the temperament for the job. So giving police departments additional funding or whatever it takes to expand their scope to hire people that have the right temperament, but also diversity on police departments is still, it always has been, and it is still uh, important. Our training, given our men and women's training, we know that police departments, depending on their size or where they are, have different training budgets. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would have allowed some, for some minimum standard training or training standards that I certainly think could give men and women the tools on the street to protect themselves, but to better be able to protect members of the uh, community. Modifying policies like uh, chokeholds and no-knock warrants. Look, we had a policy at OPD that said you could not strike a person above the shoulders unless you were justified in using deadly force. Why? Because a strike above the shoulders can cause death or great bodily harm. We certainly saw in Memphis through the video, what we, what we all saw tragically with our own eyes, were officers, they kicked Tyree Nichols in the head. They punched him uh, in the face. They beat him with the aspartame. They sprayed him, they tased him. And modifying those policies, having a national a database that where if one police officer was fired from uh, one agency, maybe even in another state, that they could not, with just cause, that they could not simply cross state lines or go on the other side of town and apply and get hired at another agency. And then, John, increasing accountability. Now, good police officers are not afraid of that. Increased accountability is a Good thing. When officers, bad officers know that they're going to be held accountable and pay the consequences for bad behavior. Of course, our hope is that that improves performance and citizen uh, interaction. So, no, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was not perfect, but it was a step in the right direction. And that's why legislation, we saw what happened passing the House. Uh, I don't think there's much of an appetite in, unfortunately, in Congress. Uh, this time, there's not even much of an appetite to protect members of Congress who have been threatened. And so that's why I believe it is important for my brothers and sisters, police executives, to step up and take matters into their own hands. After George Floyd, I got on the phone and called several police executives and said, look, if you don't want the federal government telling you what to do, look internally and take action to modify your own policies. Many of them did that. Many did not. And look where we are today. We've got to do something. This cannot continue to happen. That was former Democratic Congresswoman Val Demings, co-chair of the Council on Policing Reforms and Race.
Next, this Sunday marks the 30th anniversary of the Family Medical Leave Act. We discuss the legacy and impact of this legislation with Indy Dutta Gupta of the Center for Law and Social Policy and Rachel Gresler of the Heritage Foundation. Before we get into a discussion of this policy, let's go back into the C-SPAN archives and show our viewers what uh, then-President Clinton had to say when he signed this bill into law. Family and medical leave has always had the support of a majority of Americans from every part of the country, from every walk of life, from both political parties. But some people opposed it, and they were powerful, and it took eight years and two vetoes to make this legislation the law of the land. Now, millions of our people will no longer have to choose between their jobs and their families. The law guarantees the right of up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave per year when it's urgently needed at home to care for a newborn child or an ill family member. This bill will strengthen our families, and I believe it will strengthen our businesses and our economy as well. President Bill Clinton from 30 years ago. Rachel Gensler, let's be, Gresler, excuse me, let's begin with you and your thoughts on it. Eight years, two vetoes. Tell us about your reaction to the legislation that was signed into law. Yes, I think this was an important recognition that families are the foundation of society and we want workers to be able to take the time off that they need to care for themselves and their family members. And we did have some experience prior to this signing of the law in the state's that had enacted similar laws before that. I think that just one of the consequences that has come out, and there are sometimes unintended consequences from things that we might all universally agree with, and just looking at those things over time, how the difference between what is a mandate and what is a policy that comes from the employers. And so I'm hoping that we can look in those, but recognizing this was a momentous occasion and something that we should celebrate workers having that guaranteed access. We'll get back to those consequences. Indy, your take on it. Well, since... The bill was signed. We've seen 460 million instances of Americans using it. And even so, despite that success, people primarily use it to care for themselves, but they also use it to care for their loved ones, of course. Uh, But despite that uh, extraordinary success, um, even in recent years, we're seeing, uh, say, 15 million uses uh, in a year, but 7 million people who say they can't take leave because they can't afford it when it's unpaid. So uh, we still have a lot more to do, but there's no doubt that offering people job protection um, has been enormously helpful. We'll look forward to talking more about who's left out because almost half of workers are still left out. Let's talk about the legislation and who's eligible from the FMLA, which is often referred to as, uh, has if you have worked for a covered employer for at least... 12 months, have worked at least 1,250 hours for that employer in the previous 12 months, roughly 24 hours a week. Um, And you work at a location where the employer has at least 50 employees within 75 miles. That from the Department of Labor. Rachel Gresler, you mentioned consequences. Mm -hmm. What are they? Well, I think looking at those definitions, so you you have a federal law, and so you have to define what that means, and you have to have eligibility standards. And so the reality there is by those metrics, you know, 50 or more employees, certain number of hours, certain tenure, that tends to disproportionately leave out lower-income workers. Just looking at um, 
the percentage of them that are working at smaller employers. An Urban Institute study found that 40% of people who are low income are working for an employer who has 20 or fewer employees. So that's just demonstrating the magnitude of even when you have this policy, it's difficult to capture everybody. You know, the alternative could have been we just apply it universally to every employer, regardless of how long you've worked. But I think they recognized well, that could have more unintended consequences. So it's just a difficult issue to kind of balance. How do you benefit who you want without having the consequences? Are you for paid leave? I think it's fabulous when employers provide paid leave. And what I am for is the more flexible policies that employers are able to provide. And that's why I think that it is great, especially in light of COVID-19 and kind of the reality that you had to provide this, that we have seen a massive expansion in paid family leave. I'm not for a government mandate of it because I think that too many of those unintended consequences come out and you end up with more rigid policies that don't actually meet workers' needs. Indeed, Dutta Gupta, why not let companies just do it on their own? We should let companies do it, just do it on their own, but it turns out that falls quite short. So we welcome companies adding paid leave, especially to the 11 states in Washington, D.C.'s paid leave programs. Uh, but look, we've had 30 years of companies, uh, even with the FMLA, uh, being encouraged to also offer paid leave. And Again, it's great when they do, but it's disproportionately women of color, low-paid workers who are left out. And we're talking about tens of millions of workers who have the same care needs as the rest of us, sometimes even greater care needs because they may be working part-time and uh, they won't qualify for a uh, company's plan. And let's just remember that the United States is the only wealthy country in the world without a program like this. Uh, there's no doubt we can afford it. Businesses support it in poll after poll. And even small businesses in particular, seven out of 10 small businesses support it in uh, some research. Uh, so I think uh, it's always great when companies uh, add policies like we do as an employer at the Center for Law and Social Policy. Uh, but the D.C. paid leave law, for example, is really the basis that folks can count on um, so they don't have to win the employer lottery to be able to take care of their loved ones and themselves. Rachel Gresler, can the United States afford it? We can afford it, and I think we can afford it better when it comes from employers themselves or even from families through the opportunities they might have, even if it's a universal savings account. Um, we've seen a 77% increase in workers having access to paid family leave over the past five years alone. So we are on this upward trajectory. What I don't think we can afford is a one-size-fits-all government mandate, and that's not just because the costs of it. I think the costs will be a lot higher than people have been told they would be, but it's because we can't afford people being left out. There will have to be rules and restrictions like the bedding the work for 12 months, working a some certain number of hours, working for a certain large employer, and that's going to leave out the people. And so those people are left out, and at the same time, you're crowding out the employer-provided leaves. We've seen in the states that have these mandates, that have government programs, employers don't pick up their own programs because they're already paying into the government one, so they feel like they don't need that. But in D.C. here, it's not an easy process. And evidence has shown, especially for lower-income Americans, it's kind of like the door is closed because it's bureaucratic. You have to submit the paperwork. You have to say exactly what days in advance you are going to be off, and you can't change that afterwards without a really difficult process. You can't take a half a day off for a doctor's appointment. You must take a full day off. If you work when you took time off, you have to pay it back. It's just a lot more cumbersome than me simply saying to my boss, I have a doctor's appointment. I need one day off. I'm going to have a child. 
I need 12 weeks, 16 weeks off. Um, I'd just love to encourage more of those personal relationships because a government program can't be personal and it can't understand each worker's needs. Indeed, Dutta Gupta, why not follow that outline? Yeah, unfortunately, we've seen for decades that employers haven't followed that outline. So they have not given leave, especially to people who are lower paid. And workers often don't have that power, um, and especially in an economy where uh, unionization has declined dramatically over the last half century. Um, uh, the sort of relationship um, Rachel mentioned means that a lot of workers are at the whim, and their families, their loved ones, are at the whim of employee, employers who are uh, very likely to say no, see them as replaceable. Um, and uh, again, we need not only a, a paid leave program, a national paid leave program, but we need other caregiving supports too. Um, Almost everything Rachel discussed, the shortcomings of a particular paid leave program, is addressable. Um, there are other states that offer uh, less than full day leave, for example. Um, and I think what we need is the protections for workers to be able to not only keep their jobs, but also to be able to afford the leave. And let's remember when uh, workers are having to raise this with their employers, they are absolutely risking losing their jobs and at best getting unpaid leave, especially if they're low-paid workers, which is disproportionately women and workers of color. That was Indy Dutta Gupta of the Center for Law and Social Policy and Rachel Gresler of the Heritage Foundation. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website at cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television. Live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time.